0: We've been in our series, Expectation, and what we've kind of looked at, I mean, we're talking about the expectations of life, just uh, many of us have them. I mean, I have expectations that when a kid goes to school, they're going to be safe, and they're going to come home. Uh, we have expectations of, of, of just of our marriage, of our children. We have expectations of our jobs. We live with somebody, but one of the things we realize, too, is we also have expectations that we bring into this room. We bring expectations into the church. We bring expectations about God. Um, and we've been talking about one character in the Bible who also had some expectations. His name was John the Baptist. He came in front of Jesus. He came kind of like a preacher to prepare the way for Jesus coming. And he ends up in jail because he was preaching the message of Jesus. He was preaching, repent, the kingdom of God has come change your ways. Get on board or else you're not going to be on board with God. Uh, he ends up in jail and he sends a message out to Jesus. And he basically uh, plays his cards. He plays the reality of this is what I expect of you, God, and that's that you won't leave me in this jail. So he says, Hey, are you really the Christ, the promised Messiah, or should we expect someone else? There's the word expect. Jesus sends a message back and he says, guys, go back and tell John of what you see. And he reports this incredible life that Jesus lived. The, the lame are healed. The blind receive sight, uh, and he he lays out this incredible ministry of Jesus connecting with John that the expectation in in our early parts of our Bible is that that would happen. So the promises are coming true. So John connects with that, but then he tags on. Jesus says, tell John, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, John, (laughs) I'm the one that does all that, but I'm also the one that's going to leave you in jail to ultimately lose your head. And see, sometimes our expectations run up against reality, run up against truth. I think one of the things that we bring into the church, we bring into God, we bring into this, is that God is all about me. God is about making me comfortable, keeping me safe, keeping me secure, blessing me. If I give, then I'm going to get. And it's this whole picture of kind of this, this, this safe and secure, comfortable religion that we've established. And, and Jesus is saying, nah, that's really not what I'm all about. So expectations, about of kicking this around. Now, this morning, this morning we get into it's this is this. I love this message this morning. I love the passage where we're going. This is my favorite theological principle in the entire Bible, uh, it, it, and it's the the theological principle of adoption. That to me, this passage we're going to look at. If you turn with me there to Galatians, Galatians chapter four, it's the heart, the very heart of the story of God. Galatians chapter four. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, you will find Galatians quite a ways back towards the back of your Bible. You're going to see Ephesians. If you pass Galatians and if you, um, before Galatians, you're going to run into books called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Again, trust you to have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, um, if you're new to Christianity, welcome. Thank you for joining us. See us afterwards. We will make sure you have a Bible and you have, get one there in your hands. Galatians chapter four. Now this, it's really the heart, this passage, the story of God. It's all about adoption. It's a cool thing. What I want to do kind of to set the stage before we read this is kind of draw some parallels. And, and one of the parallels that we're going to draw is the parenting. I think if we understand the heart of a parent, we're going to, the, the, this passage comes alive. life comes alive in ways that really kind of blows our mind. And as I say that, it doesn't you don't need to be a parent to really grasp this passage because the reality is all of us in this room have been parented, good and bad. Some of us in this room have been Beautifully parented, and you've got you are, you are living a full life because of it. Others of you in this room have been poorly parented, and you're still unpacking some of the pain and the carnage of that and, and trying to put the pieces. But, but I think if you run the parallel of parenting and understand the dynamics of parenting, this passage really comes alive. And here's, I think, let me throw out the expectation for you. And I think this we do this in parenting. The expectation that most of us live with, that me included, is we need rules. To keep us from the evils of society, we need as the word I would use we need rules to keep us from the evils that 's kind of how we live now let 's just take the big picture of what 's happening in America right now on, on my Facebook page. A lot of my friends right now are talking about what in relation to Connecticut. What do they think the answer is? Gun control, right? You have all this discussion now. I agreed. What they need to sit down and have some discussion. I think the, the left and the right need to sit down and really talk this thing out and really ask, are we doing enough to keep people safe in America? With so, but, but if you think about it, what I find interesting is automatically the horrors of this happens and what is our immediate gut response to keep the evil out? We need more what? Rules, right? So we live this way. Let's bring it down into our, our kind of personal everyday lives. Um, work. Most of you in this room have a job you go to. Now, as you think about your job and you think about work, and as I think back when, on um, when I worked at SuperValue Food Distribution, the big warehouse up there uh, in Denver, I was there to help associates be successful. So they had me, and my role was as we hired 14, 15 new people every two weeks, my job was to get them up to speed to be successful. Now, why does that company exist? Why does SuperValue exist? To what? To make life better? We'd like to think so, right? Why does your company exist? The place you go to work tomorrow or tonight, why, why does that company exist? What do they want to do? Make money, right? They want to be profitable. Now, to be profitable, what a what companies, they, okay, so this is how it worked with me. To make, pro, make money, the associates that we hired have to do things a certain way, have to have a certain output, so therefore we have profit. A thousand people work at that building there in Denver, So do you need law and rules, order, policy, or do you let them run free, right? So so you begin to see, matter of fact, my one manager said it to me this way. He said, Adam, never forget this. He said to me, I have a personal view of management that people will do as little as possible for as long as possible for as much money as possible. So therefore, and as we chuckle with that, right, therefore, he said, my philosophy of management and of leadership is it's our job to put rules and policy and systems in place to manage people who are trying to get away and take our money from us. Therefore, we're more profitable. So again, we see in the working world, most of us kind of run to, well, to make our companies successful, we need more rules, law, order, policy, etc. Now, Go to the church world. Need I say more? Uh, most of us think, yeah, we need more rules, right? I mean, I think of one when I was a teenager that I heard a preacher say one time, and I said, yeah, that's a good rule. That, this, and this one worked for me. Um, don't smoke or chew. so we can finish the line or go with girls who do, right? Now, that worked out for me. I found a really good girl who doesn't smoke or chew, and it's worked out great. So, I mean, there's a rule that was set up to protect me. And, but you, you go, go hang out with the teenagers. Chris, I think, was just recently preaching on working through a series on dating and sex, Right? What do we do? What do they teach about? Now, I know he didn't fully teach there because I know Chris's heart, but what's talked about? What do teenagers, guys, what do you begin asking? What's appropriate? What isn't? How far can I go? What kind of rules do we need to set up? Think about um, media intake. What kind of video games can I play? What kind of internet should I take in? What kind of music is okay? And and we think there's a big, bad, evil world out there, and and we need, the expectation is we need rules to keep the evils of society away from us and out and keep me holy and keep me good go to parenting parenting now I've got some more, four small kids and what I find often man why do these kids keep talking over each other well I need another rule I mean, why in the world won't these kids sit still well I need another rule or if I don't add another rule to it rules kind of are my first gut response if I don't add another rule maybe some of us say well we have rules we just need to apply them more consistently okay but if you think about that, it's still, it's still rule-based thinking. I need to apply my rules. That's our first gut response is rules. And and society will be better if we keep rules there. Now, here's the thing. That statement there, I'm, I'm going to tell you it's half true. It's not totally wrong. But that ex- expectation is not the full truth. Matter of fact, the way I would say it, that that way of living will get you and get me by in life, but it will not bring life to you or to me. You're not going to just flourish. You're not going to take off like a rocket ship in life and find life living with that expectation. And that's what Galatians kind of unpacks. Here's the real heart of Galatians. And I think of most of the New Testament and many of the writers, law, rules, discipline, whatever the word you want to tag on that, systems, policies, Law points to a problem. I mean, why do you need rules? Why do you need rules in society? Doesn't the the very existence of law and rules in your, in your schools or in your home point to the fact that we have a problem. So laws point to a problem. And here's what law does. And we're going to look at this. This is, this is some of you say, now, wait a minute. This will come out to me. Law points to a problem and it spreads guilt and shame all over the place. When you live by law, when I run my family by law, my business by law, religion by law, it spreads guilt and shame all over the place. Now, grace on the flip side does something very different. Grace uh, points to a loving relationship. And what it does is it spreads freedom and life. Very different ways of thinking. Now. There in Galatians chapter 4, I want to kind of unpack this for us, and we're going to look at it from a spiritual perspective, but also want to, the heart this morning is to make this very practical, that we don't just see this is how we have a relationship with God, but this is how we live day in and day out. Look at um, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Awesome Christmas passage. This is an incredible, this is my favorite Christmas passage. In the matter of fact, on Christmas morning, I like to read this one more so than the story you find in the book of Luke. But it says this, but when the time had fully come, okay, when the time had come, God sent his son, to Mary, we know the story, the Christmas story. We're all in the season right now. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What does it mean? He's born under the law. He's born as you, he's born as me. He's born fully human. He's he's accountable to the law, born under the law. Now he came to do this. Look at verse 5. To redeem. What's redeem? What does redeem mean? You're obviously it's a purchasing term. It's a I want to bring back and have possession for myself. To redeem those under the law. That we might receive, look at what he does. This is incredible. That we might receive the what? What's it say? Those of you who have an NIV Bible, what's it read? The full rights of son. He says, I want you to come into my family. God says message to every single one of us in this room this morning. He looks at you and says, I want you in my family. And I don't just want you as the, as the redheaded stepchild off in the corner who's got to scrub the floors in there. I want you to have the sit at, uh, you got a seat at the table. Now you get to seat at the table, I'm going to write your name right into my will and make sure that you get the fair share of everything that I have. Because look what he says, and he goes on, because you are sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, an incredible teaching. So when you believe in Jesus, you become a son of God. God does this incredible thing where he sends the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. That's where if you ever hear kids, you know, hear kids in church a lot say, I ask God into my heart. There's there's the verse probably where they, they pull that teaching from. So I'm in God's family. And now because of that, I have God living with me, in me, with me as a comforter, as a counselor. Now. The spirit, it says, calls out, and this is an incredible term, Abba, Father. Basically, could be translated Daddy. I mean, this is an intimate, relational term. This isn't just some uh, legal transaction term. This is a Daddy. That you can, so the spirit calls out to God. You're in God's family. You're a son and a daughter, and you can call him Daddy. Now, that's odd for some of us in this room. Some of us say, whoa, nah, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Now, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave. Cool term. You aren't the, you aren't the person off, you aren't Cinderella off scrubbing the floor. You are at the table. You've been invited to the ball. You're, you're not riding the pumpkin. You got the stagecoach. I mean, this is, you're marrying the prince. But you're a son. And since you are a son and a daughter, God has made you also an heir. I put you in the will. I put you in the will. You're just as important as everyone else around the table. Now, if you look back to Galatians chapter 3, we could spend all morning just mining the depths of those few verses there. But I want to kind of set the context by looking back at Galatians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 15. And to kind of unpack, verse 15 jumps into an argument that the writer's making. And he's, and he's talking about law versus grace. That's what he's really kind of talking about. Basically, what happens is the church planner, the apostle Paul, comes into the area. He starts this church up. And he starts the church up with one simple message. The message is you want to have peace with God, you, got to have, you have to have faith in Jesus, period, end of story. So he starts with that message, the church grows, it takes off, as it grows and starts to something happens. And he comes along and, and you read Galatians chapter 3, he is sarcastic, he is biting, he is, he is loaded for bear. And he says, what is wrong with you guys? He says, you start with this, isn't life all about faith in Jesus? Don't you know that? Well, who has fooled you? Who has bewitched you, as some of your translations will say it? Who who has tripped you up? Because you guys are now living as though law is more important than grace. You're all messed up. So then he goes into this argument, and he's going to help convince them once again and afresh why this is true. So that's where we pick up in verse 15. It says it this way. Brothers. Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So in other words, he says, I've given Abraham a promise. The promise isn't just that he's going to have lots of kids. The promise is that he is going to, through his, his lineage, is going to come a person who's named Jesus who's going to free the world of their sins. I've given you a promise, he says. Now, a promise is a promise is a promise. Now, this is hard for us in our culture because I'll be honest with you, promises in our culture aren't so important. I mean, really think about it. I think my kids at times will say to me, but daddy, you promised. Have your kids ever said that to you? Why do they have to say that to me? You know why they say it to me? Because sometimes I use the word promise to mean I hope it happens, or I think it'll happen, or I plan to make it happen. But a promise, when I say I promise, what am I saying? It's going to happen. Our, Our culture today, you know, when a wedding happens, a man and a woman will come down and stand in front of a church like this, in front of a pastor, and they'll say, I now, I commit to you until what? Death do us part. But in our culture today, it's, that's obviously broken down, and and so in our culture today, you, you hire a lawyer to scrub fine print out of contracts, and it uh, this. So Paul's building on this foundation that we understand what a promise and a covenant is, and it is a for sure thing. We struggle to grasp that, but that's what he's saying. Now, continue to reading. Look at verse seventeen. What I mean is this: the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace, God, God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now the argument here is this he, Paul's saying, okay guys, yes, God made a promise. Now they're saying, but now wait a minute, Paul. Now wait a minute. <laughs> Didn't the law come along later? Didn't the law come along second? So he says, so if the law came along second, doesn't it do away with what was already there? And he says, no, no, no. A promise is a promise is a promise. So then why does the law come along? Why does he have it? I mean, Paul makes the argument, listen, God promised this. Now look at verse 19. It's going to answer that question. What then was the purpose of the law? Great question. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a, now look at this word. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Now, what is a mediator? Think about this. If you have problems in your marriage and you sit down with a mediator, who is the mediator for you or your wife? You or your husband? Who are they there to represent? Neither, right? If you have a legal dispute and you have to sit down and with your business or, or maybe with a neighbor and, and have a mediator, who does the mediator represent? It's a neutral third party that stands in the middle. Here's this cool thing. God says, listen, the law showed up. But if you, in Paul's argument, the law was put into effect with a mediator. It's not a first hand encounter with God. But he's saying, my heart is, and the heart of God is, I want a firsthand encounter with you. He says, Adam, I want a firsthand encounter with you. And and not only that, but he says, I'm going to carry this promise out. And the promise depends on me, God. I am one. I am responsible to carry this out. And I will carry it out. I have made the covenant with you. So he says, the law doesn't operate that way. The law had this mediator. The law's not personal. The law's not, not connected. The law has this go between person, but I don't want to go between. I want to come to you and live in you, live with you and, and be relational now. So why is the law there? Look at, look at, um, look at verse 19. This comes back to our expectation that we set. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of what? What's the big, long word you see there? Transgressions, right? Now, how many of you know what transgressions are? Now, some of you older people in this room say, yeah, I'm a smart guy. I know what that means. I'm a smart girl. But I I like to bring things down to cookies in the bottom shelf. Transgression is just a big, long, fancy word to say sin, evil, bad, ugly things. We saw transgression at its finest on Friday. Ugly, ugly stuff. So why was the law given to us? You say, well, wait a minute, Adam, isn't this, this is it to protect us, right? I want you to think about this. The law was given. It's a gracious thing that God gave to us. Imagine a society without law and order. There are a lot in this world. Matter of fact, here's what I thought about. If, If we lived in a culture without law and order, what we saw on Friday, we would see on a regular basis. I firmly believe that. Matter of fact, what we saw on Friday and that carnage of that and the unspeakable terror of that, we wouldn't have seen 28 people lost. We would have seen a whole school lost. You go talk to people who've lived in Africa, Sierra Leone and other places around this globe. Some places in the Middle East today that do not have law and do not have order. And you have full-blown genocide at times. You have just absolute terror that reigns. So God says, I am giving you the law to hold back evil. So the law is a gift to us. The law is a gift that says we need law to help keep evil evil at bay. That's what the law is for. Okay, now, but it's not, doesn't do its full job. Continue reading. Look at verse 21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. Now catch this. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Let me ask this question. This verse answers this question. What can't the law do? Look in that verse. Try and see this for yourself. What can't the law do? It can't give you something. You see what it can't give you? cannot give you life the law will not help you live matter of fact not only that but he see that where it says look what it says for if a law so his argument is obviously the law doesn't do this for if a law had been given that could impart life then righteousness would certainly have come by the law so he's saying this doesn't happen this way so the law does not make me good the law doesn't make me righteous it doesn't make you good it doesn't make you righteous and it certainly doesn't give you life Now, verse 22, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We're prisoners of sin. Uh, Some people push back on that, and I say, listen, (laughs) I get that. I love Jesus. I know Jesus. I've walked with Jesus for a lot of years. I'm a pastor, but there are things in my life that I just can't seem to say no to. There are things in my life that no matter how bad I do not want to do, I continue to do. So at some level, we get this. We understand what it means to be held captive by sin. Now, verse 23, before the faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law, now this cool cool thought here. So the law was put in charge to what? What was the law to do? To lead us to Jesus, to lead us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now, this concept here, verse 24, that says, so the law was put in charge. Some of you in your translations will see the law was a tutor. The the translators have a hard time with this one is from what I read and understand because in this Greek culture of the day, how it worked is if my wife and I, we've got four small kids. So if we lived back in this day and we had the means to do it, we would go out and we would buy a slave. We would bring that slave into our home when our children hit between six and seven. And we would leave that slave in the home until they were hit puberty. And the whole goal of this is for the slave. And these slaves were strict disciplinarians. These slaves were man you hammer down law you hammer down the rules and the purpose of those slaves were to guard and to kind of like our present day nannies if in some situations where you have someone else who comes in as kind of a surrogate and really cares for these kids to make sure these children get out into society safe and whole so their goal was to watch them and to protect them to get them through puberty they were very strict disciplinarians they were very and and the goal was is the parents wanted their children to get into life with a strong moral foundation. But it says, so the law was put in charge. So the, kind of, the law is given to us as a tutor, given to us as this person to kind of keep us. But then it's, it's not designed to make me good. It's not designed to give me life. Matter of fact, the law really, I mean, if, if I look at it this way, if we didn't have laws and we didn't have rules, we wouldn't really ever know if I was a sinner. So the law really just exposes the fact that I'm a sinner and it and can't give me life and it can't make me good. But the law is designed to lead me to Jesus. Now, it's not my savior. It's not my savior at all. The law should be pointing me to Jesus as the answer to the shame and guilt that it spreads. Is really what law was designed to do. Now, coming back to the The original statement I made, law points to a problem and spreads guilt and shame. Grace points to a loving relationship and spreads freedom and life. Now, what my desire is, is to turn this and make this very, very practical. So I think some of us at this point, if you've grown up in the church, if you've grown up hearing this kind of law versus grace thing, you've probably, I'm going to take a stab in the dark, that you might have checked out by this point. So I'd ask you to kind of re-engage and I'm going to go through some practical. So here's why most of us check out. Okay, he's preaching to those in the room who don't know Jesus. No. I'm preaching to you who know Jesus. I'm preaching to me who know Jesus. I need this message drilled deep into my skull, drilled deep into my heart every single day. This isn't just about getting saved. This isn't just about getting a relationship with you. This is how I should be living my life day in and day out. here I want to make this practical for us. I want to try my best. Start with the physical world, the working world that I talked about. Let me ask, you guys are smart people, very smart people. When you get out of bed in the morning to go to your job, some of you have worked multiple jobs, who do you work harder for, a taskmaster or someone who cares for you? Really think about this. You're smart people, right? You know the answer to that. Yeah, Adam, I, I really want to go work for the taskmaster. I mean, he, he, he just gets the best out of me. Think about the bosses that you've had through life. Who have you left it all on the table for? The one who cares for you, who's, who has a relationship with you, who's invested in you, who you know, man, this person isn't just here to, to drive profit, but this person is here because they, they're for me. Who do you work harder for? See, we get this, in the, but for some reason there's this disconnect. In it. And so we, we I mean, I look at it this way. You go study companies that have been successful. Take Southwest Airlines, for example. Southwest Airline has driven profit for over 40 years in one of the toughest industries, the airline industry. Most airlines today have crashed and folded or struggling with bankruptcy and everything else. They have driven profit year in and year out. And you know how they do it when you really read and study and you talk to the guys who have been in and out of the organization? It's not that top line. It's the bottom one. They empower their people. They believe in their people. They don't adopt the thinking of the manager that I had at Super Value. They don't believe people are there to get away with everything they can. They believe the same as what I believe. Every one of you who gets out of bed in the morning to go to your job or go to high school, are you going to be a loser? Think about this. I don't know why we run the law. I mean, my kids, when they get out of bed in the morning, my kids get out of bed going, gee, you know what my goal is today? My goal is today to make mom's life miserable. Now, we may live at times thinking that's what it is, but that's not what they're thinking. They're not getting out of bed today going, man, I'm going to just blow it for dad. I want to make his life horrible. My kids get out of bed today saying, I want to please and I want to honor mom and dad. I want to do a good job. We go to work. When I go to work in the morning, I want to honor and do a good job. I don't go there to be a loser. I don't go there to get fired. I don't go there to say, man, I want everyone to come and look at me as the example of what not to do. But for some reason, when we get to how to run our organizations and run our families, we shift to, well, let's not give people freedom and empower them because they might abuse it. Now, I know we need systems and policies and law, and and it's a good thing because it is. Verse 19 clearly says it keeps evil in check. So when you run a large organization, there is a certain amount of law that's needed. Look at Gore-Tex. Those of you, again, business guys in here, business women, study Gore-Tex. Cold right now. You're pulling your gloves on. You look at the tag that says Gore-Tex. Gore-Tex has no hierarchy in their organization. They've driven profit for over 40 years. It's amazing. They give their associates, front-level, entry-level associates, not managers, not the boss, almost 100% autonomy and freedom to do their job. It's amazing. It just turns our American business model on its head and says it can be done with grace and I think sometimes us business guys, those of you who are business people get a little concerned about this because it's just lovey-dovey, fluffy stuff, and and it doesn't drive profit. But I think your experience would tell you otherwise, right? You've worked harder for the boss who cares for you the most. Always, every time. Now, take parenting. I want to give a precursor in this one. (laughs) I am not, and I do not believe just because you're a good parent means you're going to have a good child. Or if you're a bad parent, it means you're going to have a bad child. If you have a bad child, it means you're a bad parent. I don't believe that. I do believe scriptures generally teach good parenting produces good kids, generally. But that, there's a lot, a lot of times that rule is certainly upended. With parenting, parenting, I'm, I'm deep in the throes of it. And I've learned, and, and those of you who in this room who are young parents or have been young parents and even teen, parenting teenagers, parenting is hard, hard work, Right? Do I get an amen on that one? Let me turn to your neighbor and say "Parenting's hard work, right? Those of you who raise kids, it's hard. And the kids don't come with an instruction manual. I really wish they did. I mean, I wish they popped out and I could say, man, this this is okay. That's what I do here. It doesn't. So what I've learned to do is I've said, well, I've got to figure out how to do this. So I've read a lot of books. I've talked to a lot of mentors. I've been to counseling. I've done other things and talked to my own parents. But one of the things that Tanya and I have learned to do as we look at kids is is we kind of look around. And we've been in ministry. We've we've worked as a youth pastor and worked there. We've worked in camping ministry. We've been as obviously pastor of a church. And I've looked for the kids. Like I'll walk over to this crowd over here. And there are a few kids sitting over here. Not all of them. I'm going to be honest. I think you guys know this too. There are a few kids sitting over here. You have the it factor. Now, what's the it factor? Now, the it factor is hard to describe. The it factor is hard to quantify and define. But when you run into a kid who has the it factor, you know it. It's not just a good moral kid. It's not just a kid who's minding their P's and Q's, but it's a kid who is living, who is deep in their soul. They're their own person, and they're alive, and they're vibrant, and they're running at life, and they love people, and they care for people, and they're socially minded. and, and you go on, But they, they, you see it, and they have it. Well, some over here have it. I run into there's some young adults in this room that have it. And what I've learned to do is I've learned to come alongside of, I'd say, okay, they have it. Let's go backwards and go to mom and dad and sit down with mom and dad. And Tanya and I love, one of our favorite questions asked when we get to parents with kids of the it factor is to say, what are your top parenting principles? What are they? I always ask for a couple. And what I've seen over... And over and over again, this one principle lands at the top of every list. It's this. It's grace. Say, Adam, biggest thing I'll tell you is key on the relationship, not the rules. Say, really? How do you do that? (laughs) That's where it gets hard. And as I've probed and pushed deep into this, here is the question that that a parent, someone actually in this church, shared with me. A parent who I look at their children and I say, man, they have the it factor. Their children are now young adults and their children are, I just look to and say, man, if my kids are just half of what their kids are, I'll be happy. And so I looked at them and this individual said this to me, Adam, ask yourself, are you going to value the relationship or are you going to value being right? See, the bottom one being right is law. I have rules that we must obey and I am right and I know what's best for your life. Or am I going to value the relationship? And he challenges me as they put it in the form of a question. And, but again, this law grace thing isn't just about my relationship with Jesus. It's kind of how life works. Well, when I think about my own parents. My own parents had a lot of rules, a lot of rules, <laughs> a lot of rules. Did I say they had a lot of rules? <laughs> they had a lot of rules. One of those rules was, was what? Be home at curfew. Midnight was my curfew. Why did they give me that rule? Why was that rule given to me? What do we learn in verse 19? Why do we give rules? To keep transgression at bay, to protect me, right? So they gave me a rule. They, uh, they applied this principle very well. They gave me a rule, which is keep tra- Because my dad said it to me last night. He and I went to see The Hobbit last night as we're leaving. He looked down at his watch. He goes, oh, 1150, 11.52, I think it was. I got eight minutes to get home because nothing good ever happens after midnight. That's how they live. So they said, Adam, be home by midnight because nothing good happens after midnight. They know that. They knew me full well, and they knew what I was capable of. And they knew, man, we don't put some boundaries in place. So they gave me a rule. But guess what happened? Repeatedly. How often was I home at midnight? I think maybe I can count it on one hand how often I was home at midnight. Two in the morning, three in the morning. One time it was even five in the morning. And guess what I found every time I walked through the door? Every single time I just drove me crazy. Guess who's sitting at the kitchen table, mom, sometimes dad, oh, but you know what? was cool. You know what she did? This is where I, this is where I learned this. She didn't do it. Perfect. My parents are not perfect, but this is where I learned this. They never hit me hard. Adam, you broke the rule again. What is wrong with you? They all sure. They talked about the rule because rules. I'm not bashing rules. But what they did is they wanted to make sure I was loved. Are you okay? I remember them asking me that a lot. Did you have car problems? They automatically assumed care for me. And what that told me, I didn't see it at the time, but that told me is they valued the relationship more than they valued being right and wrong, which is that curfew time. Now, I had consequences. They took keys at times. I had to pay more of my share of the gas than what I wanted to and all the other different things they tried to do to be creative. But... Am I willing to value the relationship or is it the rules that are more important? Now, conversely, in this, I've talked with parents and seen parents. I saw, I saw this especially when I was a youth pastor. I saw parents who flipped these around, who valued rules, number one. They loved their kids. I, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that for a second. And I think generally they were good people. And they loved their kids, but I watched often people, parents who would flip these and put rules number one and love number two. And what I saw often, those kids, some of them are very successful. Some of them, I mean, I've been out of youth ministry now quite a while. And some of them are now married and living their own life and, and making lots of money and, and, and turned out pretty good. But I've seldom ever finding them with the it factor. And I don't know about you, but I'm not happy with existence. I'm not happy with a good paycheck for my kids. I want my kids to get to heaven and hear God say, well done. Well done. You guys have lived and lived well. That's what I want for my kids. It's what you want for yours. And I bet you, if you go back and talk to those parents that I walked with through that youth ministry and say, is that what you want for your kids? They'd say yes. But for some reason, they'd flip it and said, well, we got to value rules then because our kids got to No. Now let me draw this into the spiritual world. Draw us into the spiritual world, and this will kind of bring us the plane in for landing. When I got out of Bible school, my first go at it, I was trying to figure out what to do. Didn't want to be a pastor, Didn't even, wasn't even on my radar. Didn't want to be a missionary, wasn't even on my radar. Didn't want to do anything vocational in the, but I, what I did, thought I wanted to do is work in the social sector. I really wanted to work with foster care or some level. That was my heart, especially the, the inner cities where my heart really was pulling and going. And, and so I began doing a lot of research. I looked at the schools that had, that had social work degrees. I looked at, you know, I went down. I was really, and, but then I started researching the system itself. And I started looking, I got a big file of this. And I looked at why does, you look at our American system. Now this frustrates some people in this room, but I, I value it. Our American system Pushes really hard to keep the biological family intact, don't they? That's why we have foster care. That's why when a a parent blows it and they've got something happens in life, the system will take in, take that child and put the child maybe in my home or your home. But what are they doing? They're saying, okay, now we want you over here, mom or dad, to get healthy. And, and our system right now goes, I think it's 18 months or a year and a half or so, I forget the, but it's a long time. And, and some of us get frustrated because we think, man, cut these kids off, bring them over here where they'll be healthy. But our system knows and our system values that that child will be best suited to be put back with biological mom and dad in a healthy environment. There is nothing, nothing quite like the maternal or paternal bond that you've had with mom or dad or have not had. I have found my experience when people come to my office to sit down with me and they're struggling with all kinds of hurts and habits and hangups, 9.9 times out of 10, it roots back to problem with mom or dad, oftentimes dad. I see it over and over. And so our American system understands that our American system says if we can get kids back in here with biological mom and dad in a healthy environment, it's going to be much better for everyone involved. Our society will be better. The kids will be better. The parents will be better. And all the way around, we're in good shape. Now the reality is the reality is reality actually. And we know that it doesn't work. We know, unfortunately there are parents that just for whatever reason, choose, make very, very poor choices and they will never get their kids back or death happens, or other things. So what happens with the child? So I began doing a lot of studying, a lot of research, and saying, well, what's better? Is it better to have adoption, or is it better to have orphanages? I really asked this question very honestly, and really began probing, I see, because we're very much against that in America. I've been against it for the last number of years. But we had them in our history, and other countries have them, so I began looking at them and studying them. And, and those of, some of you in this, I was actually thinking of asking, there was one person who was going to ask to come up and share this morning on this, because some of you have seen these orphanages around the globe. Now, is an orphanage bad? Think about this. We don't like them in our country, but are they bad? I think they're actually good. Do you know why? You talk to that little girl in Russia, or you talk to that little boy down in Guatemala, and you ask them, what would you rather do, fend for yourself or have a roof over your head and three square meals every day? Orphanages provide protection. They provide shelter. They provide care. Now, not ideal, not bonded, genuine, authentic, loving relationship that a a parent can give, but they protect. As I was studying this, I thought, you know what? (laughs) You know what I found? You know why I think we gravitate to the law? I think we're kind of like the orphan in the world. We know there's a problem. I know that this world is jacked up. Get your smartphone out right now and just go to the news page. You're going to see how jacked up this world is. You know it. I know it. Now, only do we know this world is jacked up? You know what else I've learned? (laughs) I know that I'm messed up. I know that I struggle. I know that I have pain. I know that I have things, and I want out of it. I want out of my struggle. I want out of my pain, and I want out of this world. Most of you can relate to this at some level. So what we do is I think we settle. I think we settle. I think we settle for the orphanage. Because it's safe, it's secure, it's regimented. I'm going to get my three square meals. Evil's kept out. I'm not going to be used now as in, in the sex industry and traded all around the globe. I'm not, I, I've, I've got my regiment, I've got my routine, and I'm I'm Okay. And you know what, quite frankly, to walk into a family is, is hard, it's messy, it's uncomfortable, it's, it's, it's relationships, and relationships aren't easy, and I've, I've got to learn to love, and that's hard, and that's painful, and, and I've got to learn to be wrong, and I've got to learn, and, and, and it's hard. As I look at this passage, I realize, you know, Adam, are you living in an orphanage spiritually, or are you truly living the freedom of what it means to be adopted? You know, what God is saying in, in, in chapter 4, and Paul sets it up from chapter 3, he's saying, listen, I don't want you in the orphanage. I know, Adam, you feel safe and secure there, and you feel in control. But I want you in my family. I want to love on you. I want to hold you. I want to be emotionally there for you. I want to carry out my promises to you. I want to write you into my will. But what I've found is I keep running back to the orphanage, running back to the laws and the rules because the tyranny of the familiar, it's a lot safer and more secure because here's what I've learned. I want to share something very personally. I learned that I'm a person who likes to control things. And what's interesting with law, law reveals that I'm a sinner, but when I live by law and not grace, I blow it. But then what do I do? I feel bad. Guilt spreads, shame spreads. And what do I say to myself when I'm living by law? I can do what? I can do better. I will do better. I come to do better. I will work harder. But if you think about that, who's in control in that scenario? Who's in control? It's me, right? I'm on a journey right now with a mentor type relationship. He sat with me recently. And he said, Adam, I'm going to share some of you. Some of you know this. Some of you are going to laugh and say, oh, my goodness, Adam. I could have told you that. Come sit with me. Mentor said to me, you have a problem with control. Some of you go. <laughs> but I listened to him. He, his concern for me is this. He's listened to my life, and he's listened to, again, I, I'm, I love my life. I'm having fun. I'm doing good. He says, but, Adam, you're heavier than what you've ever been physically. He went down and listed some other markers, and he says, here's what it is, Adam, the dashboard lights, the idiot lights. I know they don't call them that anymore, but I think they're now politically correct. They're called whatever they're called now, but they used to be called idiot lights when I went to school and went through driver's ed. The light has lit up on your dashboard, and when this check engine light comes on, it's pretty important to go do something about it. But what do I do? I try and save money, right? So I'm going to keep driving that thing, to, the, and, and, then, and then I end up in the garage, and he says, well, that's going to be six grand. And I'm like, Six grand? He goes, well, yeah, if you'd come in, you know, three, four, six, if come in a year ago, we would have had this problem all fixed up and you would have been on your way. So the lights come on because it's telling me there's a problem. That's what the law does. It says there's a problem. And he says to me, Adam, <laughs> your lights are lighting up. The stress levels are the point in your life, and you're not handling it well to the point where if you don't do something, you're going to be permanently impacted or affected. So I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about this. And, I'm like, I don't know. I don't see this. Then he said this to me. (laughs) And this is what, this is the message he gave to me. He says, Adam, what it really comes down to is you struggle with the Holy Spirit. So I struggle with the Holy Spirit? On earth are you talking about? I love the Holy Spirit. He says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because you can't have the Holy Spirit and be in control. You can't do it. He says, you like your spiritual world where you get up and do your quiet time and you read your Bible and you this and you that and and and, and it's all ordered, it's all in line, and, but you, you can't do that. I mean, I can work my tail off as a pastor and do everything right and the church could continue to shrink because the Spirit of God doesn't show up, right? Some of you know this, some of you see this. and..." So his challenge to me was, and as I was studying this, it came alive to me and said, my goodness, because I saw it, because it's when you are adopted, it says you have the spirit of God in you who then makes, cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy. But it's not comfortable and it's very scary because I'm not in control. I can't control it, no matter how hard I try. Verse 26 reads this way and I'm going to pray. For all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You want to be a son of God? You want to call out, Daddy? Believe in Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise he's brought you into the family he's put you to table he says you're in the will you have the spirit of god in you and you can call me daddy powerful thought he wants to adopt you let me pray for you i want to like pray i want to pray specifically for those of you here this morning to say you know what adam this thing's new to me i'm not in relationship with god i've never been adopted i want to specifically challenge you this morning to say you know what what keeps you out don 't run to the law don't run to the gra- don't run to do more work harder run to the grace and mercy of Jesus for those of you that are in relationship with jesus i 'm going to pray for you and my specific prayer for you is that you would learn to live by grace not by law it's not something that got you in it's something that keeps you in and sustains you day in and day out God thank you so much for Jesus thank you that we are adopted those of us who believe In Jesus Simple faith in the promise The expectation is that You would show up in the form of Jesus You were promised to this guy named Abraham You were promised There's an expectation of grace To come God you've shown up And your call to us is Listen believe in Jesus And by believing in Jesus we enter your family God it is so awesome God, I pray for the person here right now who may have come in by invitation of a friend or a family member or maybe just wandered in, found us online or on Facebook or somewhere else. And thank you for them having the courage to be here. Thank you for um, the friend that invited them. And, God, I pray for right now those people that say, you know what, I'm not too sure about this thing called Jesus. And, God, I pray right now that you would, with this very moment, the Spirit of God would be active and nudging and prodding and saying, listen, come to Jesus. Believe in him, period. Stop working hard to get your peace with God. God, for those of us that are here that are, uh, would say, man, I'm, I'm in. I'm, I know I'm a child of God. May we live from that place. May we live with our identity wrapped up in what it means to call you daddy. May our identity be wrapped up in the fact that the Spirit of God is living with us and in us. May we not be people that run to the orphanage and say, man, this is cool because I got my meals. The world is out there, the big bad world, and I'm in here safe and sound. But God, you want more than for us to have a bed to sleep in and food to eat. And God, you want an intimate relationship with us. And God, it's so different than obeying rules day in and day out. God, when we have that intimate relationship with you, we keep the evil out, but yet we run out into the evil to reach it. So God, would you help us to be people who do that and do that really well? Live with grace flowing from our hearts, not be rule-driven people, but be grace-driven people. Thank you for Jesus. Now, as we just listen to some music, maybe we spend some time just reflecting on who you are and what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.